Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. And I'm Denny. Today, we wrap up our discussion of remote work. In episode one, we covered the stated arguments for and against return to office. In episode two, we discussed the unstated motivations, the things that might be the real reasons behind the decisions. In today's final installment, we play futurists and we discuss our views on where we think the world of work is headed. Today, Danny, I'm going to kick it off with my first prediction. I predict things will go back to more office-centric before it gets less office-centric, to four days a week. It used to be that Fridays were casual days and people would wear jeans and Hawaiian shirts. And I think in the future, Fridays will become work-from-home Fridays. And I believe it's not going to be a group decision. I think this is maybe where you and I disagree. I think it's going to be one person making the decision, the person at the top, and their true motivation will be based on their ego and fear. Well, that's interesting, Glenn. I, I don't know that I completely agree with that, but then, you know, as futurists, we can pretty much make any guess we want and there's uh, no real consequence to us personally. I, I think that there will be some segments of work, some businesses, some CEOs, who pound on the table and say, everybody back in the office or clear out. I also think that there will be almost every other variety of response, ranging from partial return to office to fully remote to a case-by-case basis. And I think it's going to be largely based on the business, the kinds of work that are done in the business, and most notably, both the success that they've had in the past few years and the particular opinion of that person at the top. So we may not entirely agree on how this is going to work, but I I think that it has changed forever. This is a new world, primarily prompted by the experience of the pandemic, but I do believe that there will be plenty of CEOs who see the value in letting people have more flexibility. So we're not quite on the same page with that one. So what else you got? Prediction number two, while in-office mandates begin to proliferate at the largest companies, it's going to create an opportunity for the small and medium-sized companies. More people will organize these smaller enterprises and existing and small mid-sized companies will, some reluctantly, realize they can get experienced, hardworking people by actively supporting remote work for some categories of jobs. That I would agree with. I think that that's a a very astute observation that current statistics support. Hmm. Uh, But I think the key point that you make there is that it's going to be some businesses, clearly not, not all of them. And as that starts to happen, the largest companies will start to loosen up again as those top leaders start to become more fearful of failing from losing hardworking, experienced employees to other companies, and they will start to feel the impact in real and in only perceived ways. I find it interesting, Glenn, that a lot of your opinions about this and your perspective seems to center around this topic, which we discussed in some detail last time, and Mm -hmm. that is that fear is the primary motivator for the CEOs. And on that, I think you and I probably disagree a bit as well. My opinion is that it's based more on the personal experience of the CEOs, the executive leaders in these positions, and based on how they learned to work. As I pointed out in the past, there are statistics for whichever position you want. Pick the one you like, and I can support it with some sort of research that was done to prove 
any opinions about this, but one of the things that does seem to be consistent is that there are some broad categories of CEOs, executive leadership that have to do mostly with age, that the older CEOs, those who learned to work in corporations in the office are much more likely to support in-office activities. The younger CEOs, by and large, seem to have a more of an open mind about letting people work either in the office or at home or some combination. So I don't know that I would say or agree that it's, that it's driven solely by fear, either fear of losing control or making bad decisions. I, th- I think it's mostly from experience. And the decisions that these folks are making are based both on what they're currently experiencing with their uh, work at home situations, but out of their past, kind of where they, where they got started in this business. Yeah, I think we do have a slightly different position on that topic but it seems it's all heading in the same direction. Let me give you one more prediction. And I'm now out to about 2026, three years from now, I think there will be a clear dichotomy for positions or jobs. Some jobs will be remote eligible and some will be hybrid only eligible of up to four days a week. No one goes into the office five days a week, but it will eventually be accepted that some jobs are in office and some are remote. It will simply be part of every job description. And companies will have different policies, pay ranges, eligibility requirements, promotion paths. And I mean, within one department, there might be three positions that are remote eligible and three positions that are hybrid only, but there'll be both with the same job title within the same group. Interesting. Interesting perspective. I I think you may be onto something there. In, in a minute, when I kind of get into some of the things that I'm thinking, I'd, I'd like to circle back and touch on that particular approach a bit more, but I can't disagree with that. I think that you may be pointed in the right direction on that one. Okay. Last one. To support remote work, the largest companies will deploy even more employee productivity monitoring technology to try to prevent abuse. The technology might be hard to predict, but it will be intrusive and provide feedback not only to managers, but to the employees themselves. And it will become a trade-off you've got to make if you want to work remote. The idea that you'll be surveilled during work hours will just be part of remote work. Well, that's a little scary, but I have to say, I think it's already in place in in some Mm -hmm. institutions. I'm aware that there is software that actually measures keystrokes. If you're supposed to be on your computer typing something, it's already being tracked. So I don't think you're off target at all right there. That's interesting. That too, to me, seems a little scary, but I know that there are major concerns. In fact, what I can discern, the largest concern that companies have is security and monitoring the employees is one of the ways that you can address that. Attempting to impact or control productivity by monitoring employees, I think will be a little harder to pin down and mostly because it it depends on the specific work that they're doing. You're going to have to have multiple different ways of monitoring the employee. It's one thing if you've got somebody whose job is to simply write documents, something else if your employee is a customer service rep and all their time is simply spent answering questions and talking to customers. It's a big gap there. I'm not saying that it's not possible to figure out a way to do it. I think it's probably going to be kind of a terrifying position for a lot of people. Scary, but you know, the world changes. Yeah, it's going to become more and more invasive. 
How about if I throw out a few things that I've been thinking after yeah. our conversation? I have a little bit different approach to how I want to sum things up. What I wanted to do is just kind of take a circle around the whole thing, summarize some of my thoughts in a similar fashion to what you did. If I go back to pre-pandemic times, those are the days when businesses made decisions based on experience and future projections, either revenue projections or contracts that were in discussion, those sorts of things. The government made decisions based on projected tax revenues from those businesses. So that's kind of the model that has been in place as long as I've been at work. I realize it's a bit of an oversimplification, but really that's what it comes down to. You're in the business of making widgets and you're going to pay some sort of a business tax, a business and occupations tax, income tax, whatever it is, on how many widgets you sell. Then the pandemic arrives and boom, everything changes. Prior to the pandemic, there, there was a segment of remote work already in place. And I know this simply because in the businesses that I worked, there were always some, some remote employees for various reasons. It was a small number for sure, but they existed. We had some fully remote independent employees, but mostly it was working with teams in international situations. I've worked with a lot of teams in India and Mexico. I've worked with people in Europe and Asia, all of whom were remote. They may have been in an office or they may have been in their home, but the point was that as far as I was concerned, they were remote in the same functional way that someone is today when we're both working from home. There were also some companies pre-pandemic that were already fully remote, where they may have had an office where people could congregate. But by and large, when they hired positions, it was, where in the world are you really doesn't matter. We want you to work on our project. And here we go. One example, just one example is GitHub, which is a software company that developed a mechanism for storing software code in a remote location, and it was available for everyone. This company was very successful. Microsoft acquired it a few years ago, but they had already broken this model out of full remote, and it worked just fine. The other thing pre-pandemic is there, there were lots of statistics, even in those days, about the percent of remote workers. But I have to say that when you start digging into this, the numbers are all very inconsistent. And I don't exactly know why that is, but I think we could say with some degree of certainty that there are inconsistent numbers, but low double digits, 10, 11, 12% seems to be kind of the maximum that you saw, unless it was a fully remote company. So then the pandemic hits and there were all sorts of changes made. One of the difficult things to try and do to understand just how extensive this is, is to find statistics to back it up. Because at this point, if you tell me the outcome that you want from your statistics, I can find a report that will support you. So if you think working from home is bad, no problem. I can find lots of reports that say it's the worst thing ever. On the other hand, if you think working from home is good, same deal. There are lots of statistics out there to support it. It's very confusing when you try and understand some sort of mathematical definition of what works and what doesn't, because there seem to be a lot of reports that are opinionated from the start. The other thing about this is we saw during the pandemic that it varied a great deal by company and specific type of work. So, I mean, logic says that anything that can be done by phone 
or online should be something you could do anywhere. Then you've got the whole problem of some businesses shut down. You, you recall this for sure, restaurants and movie theaters and barbershops and hair salons. All of those things suffered because those are not jobs you can do remote. Business bottom lines were affected. Lots of places went out of business. And then there were aspects of the pandemic that actually increased revenue for things like grocery delivery and prepared food delivery and, and those sorts of things. And most notably, online shopping purchases at Amazon and any online position surged during that time. And as well, work for people in those segments increased. Then the other thing that really affected all of this was the unemployment compensation for many workers. If you were in a field that didn't permit remote work, you were eligible for unemployment. And as you'll recall, the federal government threw some extra dollars on the table to try to help. The reason I mention all of this is that I think that all of these activities, the great disparity between jobs that can be worked remote and those that can't, the sudden, in some cases, increase in income for minimum wage workers who no longer had to go to work, but unemployment and the federal government bonuses actually paid them as much or more than they were working. So great upheaval. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but what I'm trying to do is then set it up for this point where we are now, which is post-pandemic, kind of through it, unless we have another surge this year. But what we're seeing now is a move by many companies to get people back in the office. We talked about this in some length on our last episode. We also talked about the decision being driven by different motivations. The top of the list seems to be concern over productivity. Once again, pick the results you want and I'll provide a report to support it. The other aspect of that is you've now got empty office space. Lots of companies have long-term leases and they're continuing to pay for that space and no one's in it. I think that many companies suffer from this sense that there's a loss of control over employees. This kind of goes to the heart of, of your idea that there is this fear that I can no longer manage my business because people aren't in the building with me. And I will say this one more time. I firmly believe that there is a bias based on your own personal work experience. In other words, if you learn to work in a busy office and that's kind of the only thing you're familiar with. I believe that that's going to put you in a position of thinking that's the only way this is going to work. Some of the pressure that we see to get people back in, I firmly believe is based on that as much as this sense of loss of control. What I see is there's kind of an unintended consequence that is driving all of this, that's trying to push people back into the office. I mean, empty offices are detrimental to downtowns. There's no question about it. When you look at tax revenues in New York or San Francisco or Seattle or any of the big cities, things are pretty bad because small businesses that depended on those office workers being in the office are failing right and left. And as a result, tax revenues to the cities are failing. This seems to be a key motivator for the push to get people back in the office, much more so than the perception that productivity is down. I think that we're seeing a complete upheaval in that business model. You'll recall, right, when I first started talking about this, I was, I was saying that decisions are made based on past performance and they're, they're made on expected revenues and all of those things. And now suddenly we're in this position where it's impossible to ignore when you've got a 25% vacancy rate in your downtown 
you're going to have a corresponding decrease in your tax revenues. I think the Mm -hmm. government is starting to put a little pressure on this too. From all of this, I then boil this down to maybe less about predictions about what's going to happen, more about some recommendations for how employers and employees should look at this. I believe that the employer should ultimately get to pick what it is that they do. You're the boss, you get to decide. I don't think it's reasonable to say, well, you don't get to choose. Uh, That's wrong. If you're the CEO and this is your company, you get to tell people you either work in the office or you don't work. Whether I agree with it or not, beside the point, that's going to be the individual decision of each employer. What I do think is there needs to be a bit of open-mindedness amongst this leadership about how they do this. And they could say no remote work at all, partial remote or full, perhaps depending on the specific job, and maybe partial or full remote, depending on the location. I think that there's multiple things that have to be considered, adds a little complexity to it. But I also think the employer needs to keep in mind many of the things that you and I have discussed these past few weeks, and that is the advantages that come from remote work. You get higher productivity out of people when they're not interrupted. You get higher job satisfaction for sure. Retention rates are probably going to be higher because you're satisfied with your job. But I'll reiterate the thing that I think may be the most important is you now have a worldwide candidate pool which you didn't have before. You can pick anybody anywhere, so you can absolutely get the best. All this, of course, depends upon the employer's position. On the other side of that is the employee. The truth is, the final decision of whether you stay with a company that will not allow you to work remote is up to you. If you don't like it, you can always leave. If there is any real rationalization for employees losing their minds over this, if they work for a company that says you can't work remote, you got to decide which is more important, working for that company or working remote, and then you act based on that. But I do think companies need to consider the type of work they do and the kinds of employees they have. In other words, are they customer facing? Does it, is it phone support or online? Is it solo computer-based work? And adjust their remote work plan accordingly. You alluded to this in your prediction that there will be multiple job descriptions within an organization. I absolutely think that that needs to happen, and I think it will happen. If remote work is possible in your company, and that means the employer is okay with it, the work supports it, it does seem like the hybrid model that we've discussed seems to be the best solution, but you're going to have to design that to allow flexibility from person to person. One size does not fit all. I think that may be the key that we all need to remember in the coming years. You know, it does carry the the risk of annoying those employees who are not deemed sufficiently capable of high productivity so they don't get to work remote. And the outcome there is either going to be flexing for those employees or referring them to that mention above. And that is, you know, if you don't like working here, you can always go somewhere else. Perhaps it sounds harsh, but I think that ultimately, if I had one prediction to make, It's going to be that in the coming years, the employee is going to be the one that has to decide whether they work remote or not based on their own personal requirements. If you're good at your job, if you are able to produce the things that your employer wants you to produce in a timely fashion and in high quality, it seems to me reasonable that you should be able to work pretty much anywhere you want. On the other hand, if you're not that person, I'm not sure you should be working in that position anyway. 
I realize that there are not any hard and fast rules in here, and I, I hope that this kind of helps you understand my perspective a little bit. I think I'm less likely to make specific predictions than just to say, the world has changed, Glenn. It's never going to be the same. There are going to be changes company by company. Some of them will work. Some of them won't. We're going to see a lot of pressure from the government in order to maximize tax revenues because that's the reason the government is able to function. Given all that, that summary, I hope that that gives you a bit more of an idea of where I stand on this. It does. And I think I agree with everything you said, but I want to explore one element a little bit more deeply. Specifically, it sounds like we agree that a remote workforce can be or is more productive, more diverse, less hostile, more cost-effective, more environmentally friendly. But the change has happened very fast. The pandemic threw us five, 10 years into the future where all of the professional workers are remote. And I think what you're saying is there's there's time needed for the economy to catch up. The downtown areas need to change. The way companies look at their businesses and their job descriptions, or we just need to wait for the highest level executives to age out. <laughs> what, what, is that a fair assessment? I, I do believe it is. And, and I would completely agree that the reason that we're having this conversation, the reason that so many people are having this conversation is that it literally slapped us upside the head. It happened so quickly without any planning, with no idea of what it was going to mean until after the fact. We're just suddenly thrown into this new paradigm for which there are no rules. What's happening now, you know, the pendulum swings both ways. And I think we're on that ride back to a more familiar time. And once we get there, that pendulum is going to turn direction again and, and we'll move ahead. So it, this may take years to sort out. But one thing to me seems absolutely certain. It will never be the same. There will never be as many workers in the office as there used to be. When I first started in the IT business, Remote work wasn't even something you discussed. It just it was a concept I don't think anyone had even considered. And I remember when the first portable computers came out, they weren't even laptops, but you could carry them home. The only time you used those is when you were doing production support. And you get a call in the middle of the night and something was down, you could log on immediately instead of trucking into the office. Well, that's a long way away from where we are now. Everything I do, I can do from here. Everything I do, I can do better from here. Everything in my life is better because I'm not spending time commuting. I don't think that we're going to ever go back to where we were. You mentioned that yourself. But I do believe there will be a period of adjustment. There will be some swinging back and forth. My opinion is that the biggest unknown is the pressure that we're going to get from the government. That is solely based on the fact that the mayors of cities are seeing all sorts of problems in their downtown areas because there are fewer people there. And that trickles down to every other support business, the sandwich shops, the dry cleaners, everything that people would normally engage in while they were in the office, they can now do from home and in their neighborhoods. Some of that revenue is going to be replaced in other ways. People will still eat lunch. People will still need to do the same kinds of things they did before. But doing it downtown may not be the way it's going to turn out. Things will change. Would you recommend to a corporation, a CEO, a government agency, is a way to sort of maintain control to say, we'll make two job classes in a department of 10 people. Say that 
five of them can be remote and five should be in the office or a hybrid. And is that a way for them to maintain control? And perhaps they've got different policies and promotion paths and perks under both. I do think that that's a reasonable approach because it allows some flexibility in terms of who you put to work. I think that if you start having different career paths and promotion paths based on whether you're remote or at home, that could potentially be a problem depending on how that's defined. If you're going to do better because you're in the office, you're probably going to miss some candidates who are thinking, well, hey, I'm going to be just as productive and efficient here, but if it's going to take me twice as long to get promoted to the next level, I'm just going to look elsewhere. I don't think that a hard and fast definition of that will actually work, but I do think that's a good place to start. And then the companies can find out kind of what response they get and adjust accordingly. It at least gives the opportunity. So if you've got, let's say it's customer support, it's all customer support, and you've got 10 positions, but for whatever reason, you want half of those people in the office, you're going to have five openings, but they require you to come to work in the office five days a week. People will apply for, interview for, be offered a position and accept them and do that work. You've got five other positions that are fully remote. What that means is you can get people in that position that don't live in your city, that don't live in your state, don't live in your country. It gives the employer the flexibility to experiment with remote work, and they can do their own evaluation of how successful or not it is. I don't think that there's a way necessarily to predict how your people react. And as you know, everybody's different. So some people will complain no matter what you say might be absolutely perfectly suitable for some people and not others. I think you just have to play through that, but that seems like a reasonable start. Yeah. I think it gives, at least in the short term, suggests that, hey, if you're in the office, you can be a manager or you're more likely to become promoted or go to higher levels. And that's one of the trade-offs. There are certainly plenty of people that say, I don't ever want to manage people. I would love to work remote and just produce good quality work for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. I'm not interested in promotion. And that gives the, the leaders of the organization opportunity to support both. Two thoughts about that one. Well, where is it you're going to apply that you only have to work 40 hours a week? Those were the good <laughs> old days. And two, I do think that you're going to lose a lot of talent with that sort of a hard and fast definition. Because I personally know people who are fully remote that are outstanding managers. I personally know people who are fully in the office that are terrible. So that delineation seems to undermine kind of the intent of finding the best people for any given position. But because I say this a lot, there are so many variables, there is not a one size fits all. You almost have to do this a person at a time. If you find the absolute dream candidate who's got all of the experience, all of the skills, all the personality that you want for a position, but they live on the other side of the country. And you will not hire them because you require an in-office person to be a manager. I don't think that's an advantage for the company. I think that that's a big disadvantage because you're losing out on some supreme talent. The other side of that is if you only hire people who are willing to drive into the office, maybe you find that dream candidate, maybe you don't. But just limiting that position arbitrarily feels like it has the, the potential to, to not get you where you want to go. You're going to have to look at this case by case and make those decisions. And then hopefully management and the CEO will adjust based on their experience. And I don't think that there's a way you can say, 
in this line of work for this kind of business for these sorts of positions, this is how it's going to turn out. I think it will be 10,000 different variations of that based on the individual that you're trying to put in that slot. Right. In fact, something you said earlier made me think of working with remote employees back when it was a small percentage of the workforce. And I'm remembering times when these remote workers were actually more productive or happier whenever everyone else went remote because they always had issues of we would start meetings and forget, oh, we forgot Bob. Somebody please dial into the conference call or dial into the Teams chat or the Zoom chat because they were constantly forgotten because out of sight, out of mind. When everyone went remote, they experienced a much different working environment where they were never forgotten because everyone was dealing with the same issues. So I wonder if as more people become remote in a workforce, if everyone gets more and more familiar with it, we're simply going to find that the entire organization becomes better and better at supporting remote work. Well, that's my firm belief. I say that mostly because of what I've experienced myself. I've done a lot of remote work myself where I have been the remote employee. I've had, as I mentioned earlier, employees working for me that were remote. What we've got today is Zoom or Microsoft Teams, which are excellent tools for conducting those in-person meetings. And it feels like you get even more out of those kinds of meetings than you do where, as you've talked several times, where you're trotting down the hall to a conference room. It is interesting, side note, Zoom is requiring all their employees back in the office. That makes no sense, but that's the mandate from their company. If you work for Zoom, the remote employee's best friend, you will do it in the office. I, I think that what will happen is the same thing we've seen in the past, and that is you have to learn how to do a remote team. There's a technique to it, and it may not be intuitive because you're so used to the face-to-face -face interactions, but it is completely doable. It simply requires some adjustments in the way you communicate, requires a little bit more detailed sharing of information, maybe a few more emails, or you get on a, a Zoom call, or you have some sort of a team chat where you can post information. And when you, when you work that way, if there's a piece of work that needs to be done, I simply say, I need you to review this code, for instance, and then I go away. And the remote employee that I've sent this to will come along and maybe they're in a different time zone and they see that they're fully aware of what it is that I need and they take care of that. And I come to work the next morning and it's done. So I've seen a lot of this when I was working with teams in India because they're the other side of the world. They would work while I'm sleeping and vice versa. So we were able to move things ahead at a much more rapid pace, simply because you constantly had somebody working on these things. So there's a lot of benefits to this. It just requires figuring it out. And to your point, I think it depends on the role. It depends on the job. Is it a job where you can sort of stop working and have somebody else pick it up and begin working? But even a three-hour difference, West Coast versus East Coast, can sometimes be disruptive when you're attempting to schedule meetings or have conversations or chats because you have this narrow window in the day where both employees are sort of in the office or a more narrow window, I should say, than simply the eight or nine hours that you typically can schedule meetings. It's got to be something that you adjust to and work through and think about and manage through. I live on the West Coast and I've had much experience working with customers on the East Coast. The way I handle that is I adjust my hours. So I'm up and at it five in the morning, my time, because that's eight in New York. But the other side of that is, you know, by two in the afternoon, they're done. 
and I'm done. You have to be willing to be flexible. If you're going to work remote, you have to be willing to be flexible. I've also worked with teams in India and in Asia where the time differences are significant. And in order to make it work, somebody has to adjust their hours. I've taken plenty of meetings at midnight, my time. And I know for a fact that lots of folks on my teams have been up at two or three in the morning doing the same thing. So that's part of what you accept if you're going to be in this model. There are going to be those times that you have to adjust your life to accommodate the other folks on your team. If that's not something you can tolerate, you should be in an office where you're working with everybody during the same hours that uh, you're, you're comfortable working. Another personal choice that you as the employee get to make. The upside of that is that you still have that freedom and flexibility. And a lot of people like doing that. They like working so that by two in the afternoon, for instance, they're done. They've got the afternoons free. They go out and they go bike riding or hiking or fishing or whatever. I personally used to go skiing. I would work on these teams in New York and then I'd hit the lifts starting at 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon. So I think there, there are things that you can do, but it's all, it's all up to the individual as to how they need to accommodate the objective of what it is they're trying to accomplish and support the company that they're working for. No, that's another great point. I think as an employer that you ought to think about setting those expectations to support remote work. And if it means that, hey, we're giving you this option, but you need to be more flexible in the hours you work and what you're willing to do to support a productive meeting or a productive work stream. And it may be that they ask you to, hey, you can't just expect to start work at 8 a.m. You're in this location. You're working with this group. You need to expect to start at 6 a.m. Or you need to work something out to where, hey, this is a back and forth opportunity for us to get something out of this employment relationship. Here are the expectations we have of you as a remote worker. That's exactly right. It's what you got to do. I've had lots of experiences where there are core hours where I have to be available between, let's say, nine and three in the time zone of the company that I'm working for. I got to be available beyond that. They're completely flexible. And that's okay. Again, it was always my choice. Is this something that I'm willing to do or not? But I don't think it's unreasonable for an employer to establish that, that there are these core hours. By the same token, I've worked in companies where there were core hours in the office. And particularly when I was living in Seattle, and I've mentioned the commute there before, a lot of people would like to come to work at six in the morning to miss that commute and leave at three in the afternoon. There are other people that like to come in at 11 in the morning to miss the commute and then leave at seven at night. So you've got the same exact issue with in-office work, and you have to establish some sort of ground rules about when people are actually there. And you can be as flexible as you want based on the kind of work that they do, the need for interaction that may exist. It can vary from day to day or week to week, depending on what someone's doing. So if I give you an assignment to write a piece of code and it's going to take you two weeks, a lot of times I don't really care when you do it because you're not going to be talking to anybody. You're going to be heads down, door closed, thinking about what you're doing and only reaching out when there's a question or a problem. In a situation like that, it doesn't really matter to me what hours you work, but all of this stuff needs to be addressed. Absolutely. You're right on target there. That makes me think of one other idea. I personally believe that the employees that won't be productive at home are the same employees that are not productive in the office. And I think this opportunity to give them remote work might just be a way to highlight that because if you have managers that are trained 
to handle remote work and you have technology and policies in place that sort of help you figure out, are they being productive remotely? And there's a greater focus since they're not sitting in an office apparently working that you actually have an opportunity to highlight the least productive employees more so in legitimate data-driven ways than you do today when they're sitting in an office and faking it. I think that that was one of the very first things that we discussed in our first episode, that people are either good at their jobs or they're not. They're either productive or they're not. And some people are remarkably skilled at being productive regardless of the circumstances. Others are more productive when they're not in the office. You got to look at all of that. You have to consider every potential ramification of this. 100% agree with what you're saying there, that this is an opportunity to really figure out who your best people are and take advantage of that. Truth is that I keep harping on this same point. One size doesn't work every time. So there will be people that do a better job at home. There will be people that do a better job in the office for whatever reason. You just need to figure that out. And the other point you made, which is just hammering home something that I said early on, is that the key to all of this is you need managers that understand the employees and the work that they do. And those managers are the ones that are going to be able to say, this person is outstanding if we just let them leave the office and go produce stuff, wherever that is, whether they're working at home, whether they've reserved a room at the local library, whether they're sitting in their car doesn't really matter. The stuff that they're producing is outstanding. It comes fast and it's high quality. You just got to be able to know how that works. And the person that's going to be the first that is aware of that is their line manager. Those people are the key to making this work well. So Denny, I'm going to try to nail you down to a time frame. I've already stated that I believe the pendulum swings back towards remote work in 2026. When do you think as the pendulum swings right now towards in-office, when will it stop and begin swimming back towards remote work? Give me a year. I think that the first phase of this, the pressure to go back in the office is already underway. And I think it's mm -hmm. going to be generated largely from the election cycle that we have. So there will be pressure on politicians to encourage people to go back in the, the office based on this statement that your productivity will be greater. Whether that's correct or not, we don't know based on the variety of statistics we get, but I think that's going to happen right now. So presidential elections in 2024, between now and then in the next year, there's going to be a lot of pressure to get people back in the office, to get the economy, I'm making air quotes, jump-started. Then I think what's going to happen is after that kind of settles down, some of the things that you and I talked about, specifically some of the things that you outlined today will start to happen. Companies will, will begin to explore ways to increase their ability to hire the best. Another factor in this that's going to affect some of these timeframes is you've been in the working world long enough to know that there are cycles. And there are times when being the employee means that you've got all the power. And there are times when being the employer means that you've got all the power. So a lot of it has to do with macroeconomics and how successful companies are. And if they start laying people off and there is an uptick in unemployment, which is not happening right now, but if there's an uptick in unemployment, the employees have less power, less control over their future. 
right now, it's still a very good time to be looking for remote positions because unemployment remains low in spite of some of the news articles about big layoffs. And that's kind of a topic for another discussion. But I think that in 2024, presidential election happens, a lot of this force to shove people back in the office will just sort of fade from the discourse. And then it's going to be in the hands of the employers to start deciding. 2025, a couple of years out, a year and a half out, maybe two years, I think you're going to start to see a lot of companies more openly embracing the idea of allowing more flexibility in the workforce. So I think we're a couple of years away from that. Beyond that, it's kind of anybody's guess. Much of it will depend on how successful that move to more remote work is. Much of it will depend on how the underlying economy, particularly in the cities, responds to a more remote workforce. Are there ways to mitigate some of the tax losses that the cities are experiencing now? Will some of that be offset simply by the suburbs being the place where more people are spending the money? I think a lot of that will settle out on its own. It's hard to predict how that exactly works. We've never been in this place before. So this is one of those great unknowns where we can project and speculate. But I think we're simply going to have to kind of stand by and see. But let's give it a couple of years before we start to see an additional migration out of the offices. Wow. Okay. So you're 2025. I'm 2026. I'm a little surprised that you are sooner than what I'm predicting. I think oh, that's a very optimistic guy. Yeah, for sure. And you bring up one other topic, which is leverage. You said uh, when employees have more leverage, things will probably start to shift back. I think that's a really interesting topic, probably deserves an entire episode on leverage because I happen to believe that that is one of the major drivers of business, not only from an employee perspective, but just from a business and political perspective. I don't know that it's a driver. I think it's more of a reaction. But it is something that an employee needs to be fully aware of. So as you're strategizing about your career, it's always helpful to kind of have a sense of where the economy is and where you fall in that cycle. So you and I both know there have been times when we couldn't find a job, no matter how hard you looked. And there have been other times when you just get weary of all the emails and phone calls you're getting from recruiters that are trying to, to get you to work. It's like there's, there's not a happy medium except for a very short period of time between those two cycles. But I think it would be helpful for a lot of people to understand how to recognize those cycles, some of the things that precipitate them, how to know when you're nearing the end of one or the others. And I think we can address some of that based almost entirely on our own personal experiences with this. So that'd be a good topic to throw on the table. Yeah, I have lots of personal experience also. It'll be interesting to debate. Well, Denny, do you have any other predictions you want to throw out there for our listening audience? Well, I do believe that if you are a skilled technical worker in a business that is conducive to remote work, that you have a lot of opportunity to achieve that goal if you're not already there. I think it really comes down to making certain that the job that you do is the absolute best that you can do, that you're giving your employer their money's worth for your time. I don't think that it's advantageous to pound on the table and complain and, and moan about your circumstances. I think these are decisions that are part of your career path that you do need to make on your own. You need to decide what it is that you want, how you want your life to be. Work is only a part of your life. 
each individual that's listening to us has some sort of a sense of, of when they're happiest. Are they happiest when they're working? Are they happiest when they're surrounded by coworkers? Do they really thrive on that social interaction? Is there synergy that they get from those environments? If that's the case, the clear answer is you should be in an environment like that. On the other hand, if you're in a, in a business or a line of work that you're most productive when you're uninterrupted, seems to me that would be the place you'd want to aim. So step one is define what it is that you want from your working experience. And then step two is define how you get there. But in both cases, you've got to be good at what you do. You've got to know what you're doing. You have to make diligent efforts to provide the best product, the, the most responsible working conditions. As the Army guys like to say, the best that you can be. Plenty of opportunities. It's just going to be up to the individual to find the slot that suits their needs. That's some great advice. And I would add, if you can't be the best, you need to have leverage. Just kidding. <laughs> there you go. Well, Denny, I always appreciate these chats. I think we've explored this topic in the right ways and summarized it in the right ways. And we'll see if our predictions come true over the next three years. Well, I've always wanted to be a futurist. Here you go. Now we are. Hopefully we'll get some comments back from our listeners and uh, it would be nice to hear what other people think, see if they agree or disagree with some of our assessments. I think that we've tried to approach this in a fair-minded way, looking at it from both sides, because there are clearly two sides to this. And I think, honestly, they're both right. It just depends on the circumstance. For those who are listening, drop us a line, let us know what you think. And we'll look forward to our next conversation on another interesting topic in the world of corporately. And that'll be next week, a new topic. Thanks, Denny. Thanks, Glenn.